Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted September 15, 2017, we consider the source of yet another international refugee crisis, along with those of Myanmar and the war against ISIS. It is the so far tragic answer to a recent question posed on the World Policy website blog. Is the United Nations failing to prevent atrocity crimes in Burundi? We'll also spotlight top features in the WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. At a time when U.S. troops are battling the genocidal Islamic State, the brutal chemical weapons-friendly regime of Syria's Bashar al-Assad, and the Afghan faction that hosted Osama bin Laden as he plotted the 9-11 attacks, it might seem odd to shelf the office charged with bringing war criminals to justice. Yet that's just what the Trump administration has just done. Little noticed in the dust cloud of political finger-pointing that is Washington these days, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has ordered the State Department's Office of Global Criminal Justice closed, reassigning its staff to other parts of his bureaucratic fief. This is part of a much larger pairing back of programs aimed at promoting democracy, human rights, or development around the planet. These cuts are an instance of Trump the president doing precisely what he promised as a candidate. His foreign aid budget cuts HIV-AIDS, for instance, by 17%, anti-malaria aid by 11%, and eliminates any support around the globe for family planning. The U.S. Global Criminal Justice Office was always something of a compromise. Congress objects to the notion that the International Criminal Court, an independent body based in the Netherlands, should ever sit in judgment of an American citizen or U.S. foreign policy. So when the court opened in 2002, the Bush administration, then in office, declined to take part. But it recognized the value of what the ICC was doing, from Rwanda to Congo to former Yugoslavia, and so the Office of Global Criminal Justice at State became a back channel for Washington to help bring war criminals to justice. Now that back channel has been closed. Trump famously promised as a candidate to stop giving money to people who hate us. Some of his aid cuts seek to do that by denying funds for nutrition programs to countries like Sudan, Venezuela, and others where the government, at least, may hate the U.S. So siphoning off development and global health funding may send a message of sorts to such regimes. But giving them a pass on genocide, mass murder, and war crimes makes nonsense of that message. No country remains innocent once it goes to war. But by eliminating those charged with policing the worst atrocities, we certainly look more like accomplices. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. These crimes include arbitrary detentions, acts of torture, and other inhuman and degrading acts, extrajudicial executions, rape, and other forms of sexual violence, and enforced disappearances. A catalog of crimes reported earlier this month by the official UN Commission of Inquiry on Burundi. It urged the International Criminal Court to open a case as soon as possible as Burundi is in the process of withdrawing from the ICC 
after previously refusing deployment of a UN police force, which means there is still no optimistic answer to the question posed on the World Policy blog in August by Burundi-born political scientist Amalkar Rayumeko, a past guest on this podcast. Is the United Nations failing to prevent atrocity crimes in Burundi, he asked. And we talked about his post and the Commission's conclusions the other day for this podcast. Amilcar Rayomeko, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for, ha- for having me again. When we talked about violence in Burundi in March of last year, you were pessimistic that the international community would do much about the bloody chaos that began with the incumbent president's 2015 decision to run for an unconstitutional third term. What are the statistics now in terms of civilians killed and refugees fleeing that same fate? According to the International Federation for Human Rights, uh, there is uh, more than 1,000 dead. There is more than 8,000 people detained on political grounds. 300 to 800 people missing, hundreds of people tortured, hundreds of women victims of sexual violence, and thousands of arbitrary arrests. Last but not least, according to the UN Refugee, uh, UN Refugee Agency, uh, more than 4,000 Burundians have become refugees. In an earlier post, you noted the special danger from government-related rhetoric exhorting sexual violence. Talk about the incendiary chanting recorded in Corundo province and elsewhere. By whom and saying what? Uh, those chants were, were made by members of Imbonerakure. The Imbonerakure is the YAF wing of the ruling party, CNDDFDD. And uh, they were singing, I'm quoting, impregnate the opposition so they give birth to Imbonerakure. There are a lot of girls impregnate them in Imbonerakure. End of the quoting. Uh, the ruling party itself issued a condemnation of that behavior, uh, but the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights found it was continuing. Indeed. Uh, more uh, worrying for me, there were no further action has been taken. And also, uh, as the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, said, there are, uh, recent reports indicate that similar and larger rallies have been organized across the country by officials from the government and the president's party, so the CNDFDD, the ruling party. Uh, the United States has recently seen the dangerous results of incendiary rhetoric at the fatal Unite the Right gathering in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has weighed in on the subject in general, uh, the importance of words spoken, who speaks them in the larger context. Say more about that. Indeed. Uh as I said in my May post on rhetoric and sexual violence in Burundi, in a very tense environment like the one uh, currently happening in Burundi, this type of rhetoric, especially when it comes from a government affiliate, so from officials like the Imbonerakure, can lead the country into abyss. Also, in certain situations, inflammatory speech, speeches can even serve as a trigger, 
as a catalyst for mass atrocity. We can remember that uh, uh, from Rwanda in 1994. In fact, the context in which speech in which those speeches occurs helps determine its impact as does the position of the persons of persons speaking. So by Cautious is recommended here because head speech alone does, uh, does, not indicate, uh, does not indicate impending violence. It is only by analyzing, uh, analyzing contextual clues that the potential threat of any given speech can be evaluated. So, which means the same speech me I can give, it will not have the same impact as the speech like the like the president of the United States will uh, will give. So the person who gives the speech and the context in which he gives that can tell us or can tell the 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 the, uh, the people the um, the the importance or the gravity of it. Getting back to Burundi, in fact, the UN Secretary General and a group of African Union leaders did make personal visits last year. Take us through some of the more recent rhetorical and, to this point, still only bureaucratic international responses, starting on June 15th. Yes, indeed. On, uh, in a June 15 briefing to the UN Human, Human Rights Council, Fatsa Ugergus, the president of the Commission of Inquiry on Burundi, discussed, and I'm quoting, human rights violation reinforced by hate speeches, uh, sometimes with an ethnic dimension delivered by certain state officials and members of the ruling party. End of quoting. In July, there was a plea to the UN Security Council. Indeed, on July 26, uh, Michel Cafando, who, who is the special envoy of the UN Secretary General for Burundi, emphasized the, to, the U, to the Security Council the need for inclusive dialogue between the government and the opposition. And in August, the Security Council issued yet another statement. Indeed, again, on August 2nd, the Security Council issued a statement in which it expressed deep concerns uh, over the political situation in Burundi, including, uh, including increasing numbers of refugees and reports of torture, forced disappearances, and extrajudicial killings, and strongly urged the government and all parties to immediately seize and reject such violence. But you say the Security Council remains divided over how to move ahead with a 2016 decision to authorize 228 UN police to monitor the situation in Burundi. Is this the same force the government refuses to admit, and, and how could that rejection be overcome? Yes, uh, it is the same forces, uh, and to overcome this rejection, this rejection from Burundi government, the UN Security Council, I think, in my in my humble opinion, must force it unanimously. And why unanimously? Because it will send a strong message to the government of Burundi that the international community is fully committed to deploy those 228 UN police monitors. How much could a force of 228 police monitors do in the best of circumstances? In my humble opinion, 228 police monitors are not enough, in my humble opinion, to, uh, to, to, to accomplish their mandate. I think uh, that 3,000 troops will be the minimum required to accomplish the mandate of the 228 police monitors. But 
the 228 police monitors would be a good step in the right direction. What, if any, action do you think likely by the International Criminal Court and what kind of enforcement powers or penalties does it have? I hope the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, will soon officially open an investigations and prosecute those responsible of crimes against humanity in Burundi, like suggested by the United Nations Commission of Equality in Burundi in its recommendation. How do all the statements and steps so far measure up to the, quote, responsibility to protect that drew such attention after the 1990s bloodbaths in the Balkans and Rwanda? Unfortunately, despite all the talks, all the meetings, all the statements uh, that we said before, like uh, the one on June, in June and uh, June, July, August, nothing has been done that could help end the suffering of Burundians uh, by the continuing violence. After the 90s bloodbath in the Balkans and Rwanda, I would have thought that the principle of responsibility to protect would have been invoked by the, uh, by the UN Security Council to prevent atrocity crimes in Burundi. But uh, it, it is unfortunate that despite acknowledging the high risk of atrocity crimes in Burundi, the international community is failing to meaningfully respond to the conflict and prevent this devastating outcome. Uh, what practical and politically feasible steps uh, do you want to see by which members of the international community uh, can, can do something? The UN itself, the Organization of African Unity, the OAU, uh, the East African Community, EAC, and the, the U.S. and other Western powers. Should it be sanctions, embargoes, actual multilateral police or, or military intervention? Oh, uh, let me say, I think in general, uh, five, five, five steps. The first one, prosecute through the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, those responsible for of crimes against humanity in Burundi since April, two, April 2015, as proposed by the UN Commission of Equality of Burundi. Second, deploy forces to protect Burundians uh, in the spirit of the UN uh, responsibility to protect, as we said before, because in my humble opinion, the Burundian government has already proven unwilling to prevent or stop serious violation of humanitarian law. Third, withdraw Burundian troops from currently deployed in UN and African peacekeeping missions in Central Africa, in Central Republic, uh, in Central African Republic and Somalia. It is, you know, it is ironic that the international community is founding the ongoing crimes against humanity in Burundi through peacekeeping missions. Fourth, imposing economic sanctions on the Burundian government. Fifth impose targeted sanctions such as travel bans or uh, asset freeze against the Burundian authority. So this is, in general, in my humble opinion, the steps that the international community must take. I want to focus on the, the police and military intervention. Uh, if the government refuses a official authorization, does the UN have power to introduce forces uh, unilaterally? Yes, they can, because the, all the decisions made by the UN Security Council, if uh, 
uh, that's why I said they have to vote, they have to force it unanimously. No veto, no... Uh, all the 15 members must vote yes to a, a resolution that would force uh, those 228 police officers to enter the country. If they do that, if they do it unanimously, they will give a strong message to the government of Burundi that the international community are, uh, I mean, uh, they are committed fully to implement the, uh, this resolution. But without this unanimity, it will be so difficult. And if nothing concrete is done, what do you see happening? Uh, good question. You know, when I'm thinking about the human rights in, uh, situation in Burundi and the inaction of international community, the third paragraph's preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which comes in, uh, it, it, is, it always comes in my mind, and it says, I'm quoting, it is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. So right now in Burundi, those human rights uh, are not respected. So, as I said in, uh, in our last World Policy on Air, if international community doesn't do nothing to protect Burundians, obviously we will see more deaths, toll, and crimes against humanity will prevail in Burundi. If international community doesn't do nothing to Burundians, uh, to protect Burundians, the only left solution will be to defend themselves, to, find for their, to fight for their dignity. But I am crossing fingers that we won't get there and the international community will, will continue to, 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 to pressure the government of Burundi to do everything in, in, uh, in their power to, to, uh, to alleviate uh, the, the sufferings of Burundians. Amokar Ayumeko, thank you once again. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me uh, on World Policy on Air. Burundi native Amokar Ayumeko is a former political advisor for the parliamentary assistant to the Premier of Quebec in charge of economic issues. He graduated with a degree in political science from the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec, in 2017, he became a member of the Human Rights Committee of the Montreal Holocaust Memorial Center. Featured in the WPJ Summer Issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression, why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the next issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Constructing Family. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vasquez. I'm David Alpern.